Uh, God is building his family. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, round 3. Romans chapter 1, we're starting in verse 18 this morning. So as you're turning there, um, be prepared for the word of God, however it comes to you. It is a glory to God when we heed his word. We didn't write this. We didn't even translate it. This word has come to us through the apostles and the prophets. This is God's word and we are bound by it. So as it's hard to hear and as it is difficult, I pray that you would turn whatever that does within you to the living God. He will sustain you. He will teach you. The Holy Spirit is your teacher to understand these things. We talked about idols in us like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Well, it gets a little bit heavier than that this morning. Um, but Jeremiah does a nice job in giving sort of a visual picture of that reality. And Paul here in Romans chapter 1 gives us a theological picture of why that happens. Why do we have idols? We're going to learn that this morning. Where do idols come from? We're going to learn that through this passage. I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and the ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We have to stop there because Paul says, amen. Let's pray before we dive in here. Father, your word has spoken in absolute authority and absolute purity this morning. Your word is the final word. Help me, God, not to modify it or confuse it but rather proclaim it in its clarity. Help me, God, as I do this. I am weak. I am unable in and of myself. I pray for the Holy Spirit's power and help now as I do this. And I pray the same for your hearers, your people, all of us, God, that we would heed your word, that we would believe it and embrace it and live according to it. For that is what honors you. Help us now, God, in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know what this passage is about? 
This passage is about creation. Creation is a theater which puts on display God's nature and his character to us. There's lots of windows in this room. Everybody take a glance outside at the canal that's going by, at the trees which line the shore. There's, there's no uh, leaves on them, but there's grass growing. There's rocks which are stabilizing the shore. All of the way the ecosystem works together, the way creation comes together, the way creation can be exploited for the good and benefit of humans, it's on display right outside this hotel. We don't even have to look far. Nature and creation and that which we do with it is a theater. And the stage is where God puts on a performance and discloses something to us. And that is his nature and his character on the stage of the earth, of creation. All of us, every person is an audience member in the theater. We've all got tickets when we were born. We have our seats. And we're watching and we're seeing when we participate in the world, which is hard not to, you need to go grocery shopping, you need to go out, go for a hike at Thanksgiving, skate on a frozen canal or pond in the winter, build a house in the spring and summer. We all participate in this world. And when we do so, we are audience members of that which God is putting on display. And instead of clapping for the creativity and brilliance of the playwright, we scoff at him, we mock him, and we congratulate ourselves for what God has done. And we do so to our own destruction. R.C. Sproul, um, who I, I listen to on his uh, app quite, quite often, he says that he never spent any more time in his life on any other theme than this passage. For R.C. Sproul, this passage was foundational to the Christian understanding, and it's foundational to the book of Romans as it sets the stage for the urgency of the gospel. The verdict of this passage is that there is no lack of evidence for God, none. And it is a matter of the human will to reject God or to disbelieve God. It's a matter of the will. It's a matter of what a person wants to do with their heart and their mind. They want to reject God. That's what this passage says. It's bold. It is radically insightful. It is divinely insightful. In honor of R.C. Sproul, I've titled this sermon, What's Wrong With You People? It's a, it's a line that he said in a conference one time, and it's, it appears in memes everywhere. What's wrong with you people? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with people? This passage tells us what's wrong. And if we don't get what's wrong, this is why Paul wrote it. If you don't get what's wrong, you'll never know how to make it right. If you don't know what's wrong, you'll never know how to make it right. I'm a tradesman. That is very critical. You don't want to tear out a supporting wall thinking that it's the problem in the house. You need to know where the problem is so you can start to fix it. And that's how Romans works. It starts at the bottom of human nature. And it dumps every person into that pot. We're all of the same nature, Paul says. And so we're going to look at three parts of our outline. We're going to see the state of humanity. We're going to see that we are responsible because of the state that we're in. 
And then we're going to see, see the decline that is associated with idolatry. What does idolatry do to you and me? How does being idolaters affect us? What are the symptoms of idolatry? So that's our outline. And then we have a brief conclusion. So again, we're starting a little bit heavy today. And I know Christmas is coming, but God's word has to speak. It doesn't look good at the start, does it? Paul finishes his lovely introduction to his beloved hearers and listeners in Rome. And then he says, let's get to business. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. How many of you went to a, a fire and brimstone style church? Wrath, wrath, wrath. Paul begins here with the wrath of God. He's not ashamed of it. He's not worried about what they'll think. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Did you catch that? The wrath of God is revealed. As Christians, sometimes we think of God's wrath as something that will come in the future. That it belongs sort of at the end of time and God lets everybody do whatever they want during human history. But then at the end, God will reveal wrath against sin. And, and sometimes, you know, we hang on to that hope and that is true. But there's a reality here, a reality here that our sinful condition awaits eternal wrath and eternal judgment. But our sinful activity invites God's immediate wrath. Did you hear that? Our sinful condition awaits eternal wrath and eternal judgment. Our sinful activity invites God's wrath now. It's revealed from heaven. It's not concealed behind closed doors. God's wrath is upon the earth even now, Paul says. This will get your attention if you're a Christian, won't it? When you come into church for a little pep talk and you get God's wrath is revealed on earth right now, you're going to pay attention. Why? I thought God was a God of love. I thought God was a God of acceptance and renewal and positivity. God's nature is never in competition with itself. God is also a God of wrath. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of truth. And so the question is, if God's wrath is revealed right now, how, does that mean that God is going to intervene and sometimes he's going to do things on the earth that are going to bring suffering and even death to wicked people? Does God do that? The Bible says yes. The Bible says that God's wrath is revealed now from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Folks, it's time to tune in. Where is this coming from? Why is God doing it? And what can we do about it? We need to know this. Well, first we have to look at this idea of ungodliness. What is ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? Who gets to define ungodliness? Who gets to say what's right and wrong? Well, we should be quick to assume that God is the one who defines what is right and what is wrong. And we, he defines it and he reveals it through his word. It's his law. His law is the definition and the difference between right and wrong. There's only two kinds of people in this world, law keepers and law breakers, covenant keepers and covenant breakers. And when people live in rebellion against his law, and in wickedness against his law, the scriptures say that he has wrath that he reveals against 
that ungodliness. That ungodliness includes theft, adultery, fornication, idolatry, murder, lying, bearing false witness, covetousness, all the sins that the scriptures teach us about. That are Those are the things that God reveals his wrath against. Sometimes when we hear passages like this, we're like, well, you know, as long as I'm not the tallest tree in the forest, I won't get struck by lightning. As long as somebody else is worse than me, I'm probably safe, right? Friends, don't compare yourselves to other people. Compare yourselves to the word of God. Scriptures also say, judge yourselves, lest not ye be judged. Do the work of examining yourself. So this is... This is the standard by which God unveils his righteousness. Now, upon whom does he reveal his unrighteousness? Men, that includes all people. Women, you're not off the hook. Men and women, all of us, who do what? What type of person is this wrath unveiled against? A person who suppresses the truth. A person who takes the truth of God and suppresses it, pushes it down, hides it under a bed, shoves it in a closet, pulls the covers over top of it. Do you ever have dirty laundry on your bed? And instead of dealing with the dirty laundry, you just make your bed right over top of it. So you kill two problems with one solution, suppressing the reality. The scriptures say that God reveals his wrath against people who do that with truth when people take the truth and they suppress it they push it down like when you're in a swimming pool and you have a floaty device and you try to pull it under your body and sit on it and it it tries to come back up and it flips you over and it's it's the there's a difficulty with keeping it down the scripture says that's what truth is like truth is buoyant truth is persistent and god when he sees people suppressing that truth, he reveals wrath against it. We have to really catch that word and really grapple with what that means. People who suppress. This assumes that they have the truth. They have it. It's not that they're around looking for it and they can't find it. It's that it's right there and they're pushing it down. They're trying to pretend it doesn't exist. They're trying to live as if they have never heard of it. Against all unrighteousness of man. It says in the New American Standard that in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They cover over the truth with their bad behavior. They cover over the truth with their personal wickedness. They use another standard of morality to overshadow and suppress God's righteousness, God's truth. They suppress it out of sight and out of mind. So friends, this is, this is some bad news. This is how God describes what we are like as people at the bottom of our nature, who we are. And so when people, and this is where, this is how you can understand the world. Friends, this is part of the Christian worldview. If we don't understand this, we'll have no clue what it's like to be an unbeliever outside of the church. We won't know how to talk to them. We won't know how to relate to them. We won't know how to share the gospel. People who claim to have a lack of evidence or some moral objection to how God runs his world, they are not rejecting God on intellectual terms. 
They're not rejecting God on logical terms. They're rejecting God on moral terms. They do not want to know God. They despise the God who has revealed himself. They hate God. And so they push down God's truth. If they can get rid of the truth, they can live as if there's no God. And this is what people do. They've invented reasons and means of unrighteousness to suppress what they know to be true. In other words, when it says that God's wrath is revealed from heaven, is God's anger upon the earth because people don't know the truth? No. His wrath is upon the earth because people do know the truth. That's what the scripture is saying. God reveals his wrath not because people don't know, but because they do. And they suppress it. They run from God. They are not neutral. They are not just finding their way through the world and following the evidence where it leads. The scripture says that there's no such person who follows the evidence. We may think we're like a, a detective following the clues and we'll come out at the truth on the other end, but to God's eyes, we're like a mouse in a, in a little run in a cage and we think that we're intellectually free and neutral and we're trying to follow the truth, but God says, I've given it to you and you're pushing it down. That's a rough start for humanity. This is a rough place to start your Sunday morning. But why is it necessary? Why does Paul start here? Well, he goes on to attach a moral reality with this state that we're in. So in verse 19, Paul claims and asserts that we are responsible. That we are responsible for the state that we're in. This is not something that we can't help necessarily or that God says, well, you know, you're innocent. You did your best. Paul claims a responsibility for humanity. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. As I said, it's a bold claim to say that men intentionally suppress the truth. You may know folks in your life that aren't walking with the Lord and you could never look at them and say they're not trying to suppress the knowledge of God. How dare Paul say that about my brother or my wife or my cousin or my father it's a bold claim where does paul get the evidence for this claim there's a logical progression here he says this is why this word for means because this is how i'm saying this this is why i'm saying it because what can be known about god is plain to them this word plain means in the new american standards translated clearly seen when you look out the window, the canal running past you is clearly seen. It's plain. Nobody would debate the existence or the presence of water streaming by this hotel. Paul says, what can be known about God is as clearly seen as what's in front of your own face. What can be known about God is as clear to you as the shoes you put on this morning. What can be known about God is manifest. It's not hidden behind a curtain. It's not buried in some obscure way. It is manifest. It's open. The curtain is drawn back and we can see the wonders of God's character. 
Now, how did it get there? Did God create a world and say, I wonder what they're going to think about that. I wonder who they'll believe in. I wonder who they'll worship. I wonder what they'll get out of that. No. It says that it's there because God has shown it to them. God showed it to you. God showed it to them. God put it on display. So sometimes we hear unbelievers speak like, you know, if there was a God, then he would dot, dot, dot. If God was real, the God that I'm imagining would do what I expect of him. That's called idolatry. That's creating a God after our own image. And so people say, well, if there was a real God, then he would conform to my expectations of a God. God doesn't work like that. He is who he is from all of eternity. And when he created the world, he said, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. I am the one telling you. It says it can be clearly seen where? In that which has been made, clearly perceived, verse 20. From the creation of the world, the things that have been made are that which hold the evidence for God. Ever since the creation of the world, ever since Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, God's attributes have been known through what is made. That gives us what is sort of called a teleological argument, but that's not as important to me. The idea is if you come across a program, you assume there's a programmer. When you come across a piece of art, you assume that there is an artist. When you come across a law, you assume that there is a lawgiver. That's the way all of creation works. If you go to the high levels of biology, they don't know what language to use other than code and instructions for DNA. They cannot escape language that begs for an intelligent creator. The highest sciences do not know how to describe the world in terms that are outside of the necessity of a God who did it. It's there in the world. You just have to look. You just have to open your eyes. It's there. Now, this is what I find fascinating here is that it's there because God showed it to them, which I thought while I was studying, is there ever a time that you can think of or in the scriptures or where God tried to reveal, him, to reveal himself? to make himself known, but he failed. Was there ever a time where God wanted to get something across to his people and he messed up? He stumbled over his words. He got tongue-tied or he was stage uh, afraid. He became mute when people were listening. Was there ever a time where God failed to communicate who he was to his people? It was so clear. The Red Sea opened up. The plagues came upon the Egyptians. The battles were won. The manna came from heaven. Water came from the rock. The temple was erected by God's own instruction. Everything that God did among his people was clearly known. God's character is never obscured by his own failure. That is to say, creation does not speak of some mere God, lowercase g. The creation doesn't just tell us that some God must have done it. That some deity or some 
theistic presence must have done it. No, no, no. The Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible doesn't just say, well, it could be a number of different gods, but as long as it's something spiritual, that's what creation tells you. No. Verse 20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. Creation speaks to our God. It speaks to the God of the Bible. His eternal power, powerful over everything in the cosmos, and his divine nature, his character, his attributes, who he is, are clearly seen in nature. Did you know that? Nature doesn't speak to some God. It speaks to our God. It speaks of our God. And so what's Paul's point? Bottom of verse 20, right before verse 21. What is Paul's point? So they are without excuse. When God puts us in his world, it makes us accountable to the knowledge that, he's, that he has shown us. If you're born into this world, you're accountable. If you, if you reach the age where your eyes can open and you can think, you're accountable to God. There's no excuse Nobody can come before God, whether they've heard a, a, a presentation of this or that or not. Every person who comes before God is accountable for the God who's revealed in creation. And this, people say, well, what about, you know, what about the innocent, you know, indigenous person on some remote island? Well, there are no innocent people is what this scripture says. There are, there are none who are innocent because being a product of being a human being, we are accountable to the God who revealed creation around us. And the scripture says we are accountable for the one that we reject, the one that we suppress. Every person suppresses the revelation of God's knowledge in unrighteousness. This is the state of humanity. This is what the Bible calls total depravity. It doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they can possibly be. It means that every single person fails to worship God rightly apart from his intervention. Romans chapter three speaks to this theme. 310 says, as it is written, there are none righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Are you prepared to accept the Bible's diagnosis of the human condition? This is not what our people, this is not what our politicians tell us. This is not what many preachers tell us. Preachers tell us that you have to appeal to a person's goodness for them to come into the church, for them to meet Christ. You have to appeal to their sense of integrity. You have to appeal to that which is noble in them. Scripture says, no, there are none who seek after God. Romans 8, 7 says, for the mindset that is on the flesh is hostile toward God. It hates God. The mind in the flesh hates God. For it does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This theme is woven throughout Romans. That we have turned aside. That we have suppressed the truth. God put us in his garden and in Adam we have rejected him. We have suppressed his truth in unrighteousness. So let's review Paul's argument before we get to the consequences of this. 
Let's review his argument. God is demonstrating his wrath and his anger against sin in the world. And he's doing it upon people who deserve it, who, who get what they deserve. And friends, that includes all of us without Christ. Let us not be proud. God's wrath is revealed against people who are accountable, who he considers guilty, who deserve it. They deserve it because they are intentionally suppressing God's knowledge in their wickedness. They're doing it on purpose. They're pushing down God's truth. Where does that knowledge come from? It comes from what theologians call general revelation. They don't need the Bible to know that there is an eternal and good God. Did you know that? And Paul does this with the Athenians who have never heard of the Bible. He begins with creation. He says, the fact that you can think and live in your world is proof that God created you. That's all you need. This knowledge comes from general revelation, which is enough to convince a person of a powerful, creative, and personal God who is responsible for the world in which he lived, in which we live, and that makes us accountable to him. We live in his world. It's his world. We're accountable to him. That's Paul's argument. God is angry. We're getting that anger, and we deserve it because there's no excuse to disbelieve or reject God. There's no excuse. What are the consequences of this state of humanity? What does it look like for people to walk down this road? Day one, we suppress the truth. What happens to the human condition, the human community, human society, when collectively we go down that path? Paul lays it out for us. For although they knew God, verse 21, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But instead, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This suppression of truth has dramatic consequences for society. It has dramatic consequences for civilization. The question, what's wrong with you people? What is wrong with people? What's going on in our culture today? It comes from the suppression of truth. When people bury the truth deep down, their minds start to slip. They become futile in their thinking. They become frustrated in their thinking. There's a failure to acknowledge God in his theater, like in our opening analogy. There's a failure to give thanks to God for the world that we live in, for God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. The wicked have much to be thankful for in the Lord. Did you know that? The unbelieving farmer receives the same rain as his Christian neighbor next door, God is merciful and kind in the world that we live in. Matthew 6 says that God gives food for the sparrows. In Proverbs chapter 30, I love this passage, he gives a home to the rock badger who makes his homes in the cliff. And the lizard even finds a home in the palaces made by men. Even little lizards find a cozy pillow to sleep on in a prince's palace. Because God is kind. He's merciful. 
His creation spills out and teaches of his goodness and his love. And we've rejected that. We failed to say, thank you, God. This is why when, when mom and dad put food on the table, kids, say thank you every time. There's a thankfulness that when we show the people around us, it reminds us of the thankfulness we must have for God. When you enjoy a warm summer day and a cold popsicle, or you get to go swimming at your grandma's pool, say thank you to your grandma, but also say thank you to the living God because it's from him. It's his world. And there's a gratitude there that brings him honor and glory. And when we fail to give thanks to God, we begin to deteriorate. We begin to fall apart as humans. In the pursuit of the human endeavor, which includes things that we talked about, like architecture and art and programming and education and lawmaking and nation building and, and boat building and navigation, all of these things that the human endeavor strives for, they all become broken and disoriented when there is a failure to acknowledge God at the very bottom of all things. The bottom line is without worshiping God, we become corrupt. When we don't worship God, we become corrupt in ourselves. It's not only unscientific to reject the living God, but it is morally destructive. And as I said, the rejection of God is a moral one because we don't want to be responsible to the lawgiver. If we can bury the law, we can, we'll think that we'll live free of the law. And so we reject what's called the law norms that govern creation. It doesn't matter what you believe about God. If you step off a building, you will go in the downward direction. There are laws that God has put in place in this world, in this cosmos, which cannot be altered. They cannot be changed. But what you'll notice is that everywhere where we believe we can bend the laws that God has given, we will do so because it, it's an attempt to be free from God. We become futile in our thinking. Human discovery, philosophy, science, reason, they all become polluted by rejecting the law and the nature of God as sovereign and true. The critical flaw in every scientific endeavor is a failure to place God at the bottom of it. Did you know that? I'll give you two examples. One has to do with creation and one has to do with procreation. Two of the greatest heresies that have been unleashed on the Western civilization, and indeed most of the world now, is evolution and the sexual revolution. Two of the most heinous and God-degrading and rejecting theories that have ever come across the human uh, experience. Evolution as a macro theory, which is that basically life was created by accident and increasingly became more and more complex until we have thinking, feeling, debating humans like us. That's what I'm speaking of when I speak of the theory of evolution. It rips across like a bunny crossing a highway every known scientific law that we've come to accept as humans. It outright defies thermodynamics, entropy, repeatable experimentation. It's, it's totally outside of the realm of science. And yet it is a staple in scientific education in the public system. Why is that? 
Why would they be doing that without evidence? Why would they be doing that against the scientific process? It's because when you teach a student that nobody is responsible for their life, it disconnects them from the God who made them. It disconnects them intellectually and morally from the God who is. It's not hard to convince a child that God is their creator. It must be taught from a young age, from repeated nonsense that a, to a child to believe that they came from nothing. That is aimed at the first verse in the Bible, by the way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So they take aim at the first verse in the Bible. The second way they take aim is through the sexual revolution and sexual ethics, which, by the way, is the first thing that Adam and Eve were created for, is procreation, is family building. The unity of the family is built upon the scientific reality of a male and a female. And we see in the highest levels of leadership and education, we see people congratulating women who declare themselves to be men. And they're calling it scientific. This is to destroy the image of men and women who are made in the image of God. It's to disconnect them from the clear perception that God has a purpose for them, that God has designed them for something in this world. Friends, don't despair. You're not crazy. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened when they suppressed the truth that God is the Lord. They became futile in their speculation, literally meaning powerless. It's like watching a child biking down the street and suddenly their chain disconnects from the gears. Have you seen that? And suddenly their knees start whipping around and their feet go all over the place and the bike starts wobbling. That's what happens when you disconnect God from your thinking. The chain that connects your activity is disconnected from the wheels of God's law. So rejection of God is, a, is the destruction of every human endeavor. There is no neutral space to build ethics, to educate children, to organize finances, to describe biology, to do science. There's no neutral place to do it. There is either acceptance of God's law or there is rejection of it and sub, um, subversion of it to, to push it down. Humans have always pursued the same endeavors, whether they are Christians or not. And this is where Christians can become confused that, well, what about an architect? I mean, do you have to be a Christian to be a good architect? It's, or do you have to be a Christian to be a good cook? Not necessarily, but in order to do so in a way that is fully brings to full fruition the purpose of that thing, whether it's cooking or building a skyscraper, to do so well is to borrow knowledge from God. People have sometimes asked, is there a Christian way to make a chicken stir fry? Like, what's the difference between the cook who believes in the Lord and the cook who rejects it. I mean, really, and these are Christians who want to say, no, 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 there's a neutral way to do these things. You have to ask yourself, why is the unbelieving cook not cooking skunk or not cooking dog or not cooking their deceased loved ones? We assume that there's a neutral way to do this, but it's the Christian worldview which restrains us in that which is righteous. And so the way we do everything has to do with whether we embrace the knowledge of God or whether we reject it. 
And that's coming out, friends, more and more clearly in the realm of education. And I, and I don't mean to disparage teachers every week or the education system, but this is evidence of what's happening. When they deny the living God and the law norms, they have to reject the things that scream creation. So what do they teach children? Ignore your body. Ignore the physical realm because God made that. Focus on what's inside, what's subjective, and what you can manipulate. Ignore your bodies. You could be anything you want to be. They're doing this because it's a rejection and a suppression of everything that would speak to a creator. Because if our bodies are made a certain way for a certain purpose, then somebody must have put it there. And so they're trying to destroy and subvert the evidence for the living God. That's some of what's happening in our culture. That's some of the fruit of this idolatry. I'm saying this to help you recognize it, not to become angry, not to become frustrated or to despair, but to recognize that this is a theological issue. This is a moral issue. They didn't just invent these concepts overnight because they were bored or confused. It's because they've rejected God. They've suppressed the truth and their thinking has literally become futile. It has become powerless and impotent. In other words, they exchanged the glory of God, the purposes of God, the worship of God for the glory of the created thing. We've made ourselves as gods. We've worshiped our own endeavors. We congratulate ourselves when we abandon and manipulate God's laws. What a dangerous place to live. We've, we've congratulated ourselves. The, the covenant keeper says, when, when we work and when we invent things like the light bulb or the bicycle, the covenant keeper said, God is so wise. God is so good. And I'm so grateful for my gifts and my opportunity to glorify him in those things. The idolater says, look how wise and creative we are. And so man began to pursue idols. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Friends, there's no middle ground here. There's no soft language for this. There is a foolishness in rejecting God. And again, this is not to put ourselves on a higher pedestal than people who are not walking in Christ or in the church. It's to say this is the condition that they have. This is where they're at with God. We need to know this. They've exchanged the glory of God for idols. In verse 24, we have the most sobering, dangerous words, and I would say frightful words in all of Scripture. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Did you hear that? God gave them up. He gave them over. He let them go. He stopped restraining them. Man becomes a runaway train, untethered from nature and divine law, wielding knowledge for destruction rather than good, and doing it all in darkened foolishness. It's like putting a blindfold on the pilot of a 747 as he approaches the runway. Untethered from his instruments, untethered from the horizon, untethered from the law norms of the world, 
It can only be for destruction. And it says God did this so that the penalty would be known in their bodies. We're going to look next week, starting at verse 26. And it is, it is a wretched condition that man puts himself in when he rejects God and God lets them go. We see a sexual revolution that brings destruction upon the people. God shows that the penalty is made plain. He makes it evident to those who would be watching as a warning. He exchanged the image of God for the image of creeping things and animals rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So as we close today, this is how we should understand people. This is not a rosy picture of humanity. But this is how the Bible describes people. Again, it's not to set you against the people in your community or to put you in some separate category because all of us are in this world before Christ comes. This is what sets the stage for the urgency of the gospel. How would your evangelism change if you believe that people suppressed God because of morality rather than because they just don't? quite understand or they haven't been given enough information sometimes we waste so much breath trying to convince a person that god is real when the bible says they already know that he's real how would your evangelism change get to the heart of the issue you don't want god as your lord not unkindly but that's the heart of the issue that's what will break people that's what will bring them to a recognition of their problem Again, in the so-called culture war, where the difference between the world's moral compass and ours is so vast, we're often told that the church has no place in the so-called culture war. We've lost. It's time to move on. Protect your children and do your best. But we can't because we recognize that these are just the fruit of the theological difference between belief and unbelief. We have to point to these things to say, this is what happens when you reject God. This is what happens when you suppress the truth. You'll destroy yourself, and it manifests in culture. It manifests in the world around us. We are religious beings, whether we like to or not. We will worship something, either the creature or the creator, and creature worship is destructive. And so we, when we proclaim the gospel, we're not just proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, the renewal of the personal being, but we are proclaiming God's law and his norms over all creation. We proclaim the whole gospel that the kingdom includes everything. It includes every part of the human experience. This book starts at the very bottom. It does not get worse than this except in eternity. But this is the bottom of the human experience and the human condition. And as the book unfolds, if you embrace that, it lifts you to Christ. Christ comes in where we are at our worst. Romans chapter 5 says that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. If you do not embrace this, you will not worship when you hear that. He died for you while you hated him. He died for you while we were enemies of God. He came and died for us. That's why Romans starts here. Paul, 
by the inspiration of the Spirit, is a master theologian. He is a master evangelist, and he is a master preacher. So give God thanks for the world that we live in. Give him thanks. Teach your neighbors to give thanks to God. That's a great way to start evangelism, don't you think? Point people to the creation and say, did you know that God did that? Did you know that God is behind that? It's a great way to enter evangelism, and it's a great way to recognize that our job as covenant keepers, as members of the covenant, I should say, Christ is the covenant keeper, but as members of the covenant, we give thanks to God in his world, and in our redemption, we further perpetuate the goodness of creation and give thanks to God and worship him as the true creator, not ourselves. Let's pray, and then we'll close in a hymn.